Welcome back to our podcast with Dr. Teodoro Batiglieri. Uh, we're going to continue here with more information about SAMe, homocysteine, cardiovascular research, stroke, Alzheimer's, migraines, and miscarriage, and more. I think you'll enjoy it. Thanks a lot for listening. And, and you've used both folate and S-adenosylmethionine in your, in your research. And this is, some, this is a question I've wanted to ask you for a while here. Are you concerned when giving SAMe uh, about the individual's genetic status regarding maybe their SNPs in MTHFR or one of the other enzymes that are involved in one carbon metabolism? I mean, could, you, could giving SAMe possibly drive up homocysteine levels in certain individuals? Um, that, that's been asked again. That's a great question because that has been asked by many. It's a point of concern because if you follow the pathway through, the SAMI molecule is converted to S-adenosyl homocysteine as it gives up its methyl group and that's its primary function. But then the S-adenosyl homocysteine is converted into homocysteine, which is removed from the body, you know, it's removed from the cell and, and, and excreted. Um, and, and yes, you can see this direct link uh, between uh, SAMI and homocysteine as homocysteine is a byproduct, a downstream byproduct of the methionine molecule. However, several studies have been done and shown that if subjects even receiving high doses of methionine, SAMI, it does not increase homocysteine levels in, in the circulation. Uh, we have not seen that. We recently completed a study which um, we we have not published, but we, we would hopefully you know be publishing this soon, which uh, has shown that giving SAMe in fairly high doses, 800 to 1,200 milligrams a day, to subjects with end-stage renal disease, it does not affect the homocysteine levels. If if anything, we saw a slight decrease and not an increase. Reason why we chose patients with end-stage renal disease or, or renal insufficiency was because they had high homocysteine levels to begin with. They were usually typically above 20 micromolar, which was considered quite high, um, well above the normal reference range. And we were concerned that perhaps in these subjects that had high levels of homocysteine, that given excess SAMI may aggravate and actually accumulate more homocysteine if they couldn't remove it. That seems to be That's one what of I would think. Yeah, right. So you see that um, in renal patients. Yes, huh. but we did not see that. We saw that the levels remained you know, either the same or they went slightly down. Overall, there was no significant effects in terms of the homocysteine levels there. So this is an interesting and complicated story because we, we have to get into more of the understanding of how this cycle actually works. So homocysteine needs to be removed rapidly, and it, it's not, it should not accumulate either in the cells or in circulation. If it does accumulate, which it can, if you are folate deficient, that's one of the homocysteine is the primary marker for folate deficiency and also B12 deficiency because both methylfolate and B12 help to remove homocysteine. And if they are deficient in the body, homocysteine will increase. So the if the homocysteine cre increases, it actually goes back to the other metabolite I mentioned, which is S-adenosyl homocysteine. 
And that is a problem because that S-adenosylhomocysteine, when that becomes too high, that can inhibit the methylation reactions that S-adenosylmethionine, SAMI, is driving. So it actually works against, it's like putting the brakes on the cycle. It's actually putting a block there on methylation. So hyperhomocysteinemia is associated with hypomethylation, a decrease in methylation, and that's associated with hyperhomocysteinemia that we know is associated with many uh, other clinical symptoms and, and disorders, uh, including, you know, the, the most notable one is uh, vascular problems and stroke. And, uh, and also now we have more evidence is coming out that hyperhomocysteinemia is also a risk factor uh, for Alzheimer's dementia. Okay, that brings up my next question then. Do you see homocysteine as the problem, an innocent bystander, or as a marker for reduced methylation overall? Well, I think it's going to be a little bit of each in the end, if I have to give my honest opinion. It's, it's certainly a marker, and it certainly can be a problem. If homocysteine is allowed to accumulate, again, we have this effect that it will feedback, increase SH levels, which will block methylation. And we know this from many studies. We can, we've done uh, um, you know, a lot of work in, in both uh, uh, models and you know, cell culture systems where we've been looking at this area of metabolism. And many other researchers have done, done, done this, uh, looked at this and shown that you can actually block, by increasing homocysteine levels, you actually block DNA methylation and you can block uh, or impair uh, protein methylation, which is critical uh, in some cases for pathways to function you know, properly and, and, and remove to other toxic proteins. The interesting thing with homocysteine is that I would not call it an innocent bystander at all. <laughs> and it certainly um, is a marker for reduced methylation. It indirectly will act to uh, inhibit methylation. You were talking about uh, cardiovascular disease being one of the pretty solid correlations between uh, hyperhomocysteinemia. Um, and some studies have been done where they reduced homocysteine levels by giving folic acid, but they didn't show improved cardiovascular outcomes. Um, why? What did they miss? Yeah, that, that's always been, that's been, um, uh, a kind of a was a, was a, a very big shock to to people in this uh, research field. They spent millions of dollars and and rightly so, I think, to to do studies looking at the potential for B vitamins, including folate and B12 and B6, which can lower homocysteine. And unfortunately, in, in some of the major trials, the outcome was was negative. Now that was a shock because. You know, we were all hoping at the time that with all the epidemiological studies that were out that showed that high levels of homocysteine actually increased the incidence of coronary artery disease, decreased your chances of survival from coronary artery disease, and, and it's been implicated in stroke and thromboembolisms. Uh, so you would think that if you lowered homocysteine, the expectation there that if we lower homocysteine, we would reduce all those risk factor, you know, that risk factor, and we would see a decrease in in in, in cardiovascular disease generally. 
They did not. So, you know, we were hoping this was going to be like the cholesterol story where high cholesterol levels were shown to be associated with vascular disease. And then if you lower it, you see a decrease and you see a, an improvement in clinical outcomes. Now, one of the reasons we believe why this is this negative finding came about is because all the trials that have been done were secondary prevention trials. So they recruited patients into studies and they recruited large numbers of patients. For example, the VISP study, which was the vitamin intervention for stroke prevention, uh, recruited over 3,600 patients. And it was a two-year study with folic acid B12, and it was negative. The outcome was negative. The HOPE-2 trial, which recruited over 5,000 patients, was also negative. And then there was a study which was done in Scandinavia, the Norvit trial, that also recruited over 3,500 patients into the study, but the outcomes were negative. So the reasons why we believe these studies failed was purely in the design, in that um, the first one in the VISP study, they had patients in there who were actually B12 deficient. And if you took those uh, that were, had some B12 deficiency, but then they gave them B12 as well, including to the placebo group. That was a, a major flaw in that trial. Again, I think the major problem has been the fact that these are secondary prevention trials and all the subjects in the studies had years of accumulating a lot of damage to the vascular cells. And it was a very tall order to expect a B vitamin to come in at the end and just lower homocysteine levels and make everything, repair everything and, and prevent any future vascular events. The true studies that should be done should be in, in a population which you know, have not yet developed any vascular disease and then see what happens. But for that type of study, you would need hundreds of thousands. Of people. You would need a lot of people to, to you know, many, many thousands of subjects in order to power that study to make it actually sure. uh, see an effect. Now, there is a natural experiment that occurred because the CDC has published a very nice paper in 2006. That publication reported that there is, since the introduction of folic acid to our food grain products, um, we see a decrease in homocysteine levels and an increase in folate, but there was also an improvement and a reduced incidence of mortality from stroke, both in USA and Canada. Hmm. To, to Canada get their, most of their food grain from the US. And they compared this to the annual mortality rates in other countries which were not supplemented. And you can see that from the time of introduction in 1998, up until 2002, in that three-year period, we see a decrease, a sharp decrease in the incidence of stroke and mortality from stroke. And through their analysis, we're able to attribute this, you know, by taking out all the confounding factors to folic acid supplementation of the food grain. Now, folic acid was added to the food grain to prevent neural tube defects, spina bifida and other uh, neural tube defects, which that was very successful in doing. It reduced the rate of neural tube defects by 70% in the US. Uh, and as a result as well of supplementing with folic acid, we see the uh, decrease in stroke mortality. Um, and so that is in a way a natural experiment that was performed. Your research has also noticed an increase in acidinocyl homocysteine in Alzheimer's disease. 
what do you think is the etiology and, and the consequence of this? Again, great question because you know this is something that we've been researching for um, many years now, and as I mentioned before, you know the increase in acetonasal homocysteine can occur when homocysteine levels increase. So if you are folate deficient, B12 deficient, your homocysteine levels will go up, and then that will produce more acetonasal homocysteine, which, as I mentioned earlier, will inhibit methylation. Now, unfortunately, as we age, our homocysteine levels tend to increase. And this could be due to a number of, uh, of reasons. It could also be due to our reduced capacity to absorb and utilize folate and vitamin B12. Um, now, the brain is particularly susceptible to the effects of homocysteine. And uh, what we have found is that as we get older, the homocysteine levels in our uh, spinal fluid go high and the folate levels are also decreased. So we seem to have, there seem to be, as we age, we have a decreased capacity to take up folate across the blood-brain barrier and maintain low levels of homocysteine, which would also keep acetonosal homocysteine low. And, you know, not everybody gets dementia, of course, but I think if you have this effect in a subject that has a predisposition or is, a, is, is, is on that path of developing Alzheimer's dementia, it can actually accelerate the course of the disease. And that's also been shown in the literature that if you have high homocysteine levels in the blood, the rate of progression to, home, to Alzheimer's is much faster than if your levels are, are low. I mean, it's just been repeated and, and validated in several different studies in, in, in different countries. Also looking at the brain, some researchers, I don't think your group has looked into uh, the connection between one carbon metabolism and migraines, but I, I know others have. What's your take on that research? It's something that I've been asked about before. Now, what we do know is there's studies out there showing that there is an increased prevalence for this MTHFR SNP in patients with migraine and also increased homocysteine levels. And in fact, some of the studies were done in children and shown that even in children, migraines in children were associated with this MTHFR SNP, the C67CT polymorphism. So again, it could be an effect on the vasculature. It could be the cerebral vessels are particularly susceptible to the effects of high homocysteine levels, far more so than the peripheral vessels. And uh, we know this because also the uh, incidence of stroke is, is very high in patients with uh, high levels of homocysteine. Um, so there may be some connection there between vascular function and homocysteine levels and, and, and migraines. But we do also know that there are, you know, one of the ways of treating migraines is through use of antidepressants. And it could be possible that acting on the serotonergic system that could help alleviate pain from migraine. Now, unfortunately, we don't see or we haven't, there aren't many or any studies actually that have specifically looked at the effect of these B vitamins on migraine and also on the use of acetonosomophine in SAMe in migraine, but there are several anecdotal type of reports coming from other studies where, you know, it was reported, you know, as a decreased, you know, decreased event um, that, you know, wasn't really the main part of the outcome of the study, but 
in 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 some way they can kind of get a suggestion that there may be some some effects there of acetonazolam finding in improving migraine attacks. But uh, I think it's something that really needs to be studied a little bit more rigorously and and in a very well defined way. We see more migraines in female patients, um, and I've seen in practice that often when uh, a woman has migraines, uh, if I ask them about their history of miscarriages, they it's always in almost always in the affirmative there that oh yes I've had miscarriages as well. What do you see the correlation here between uh, homocysteine and recurrent miscarriages? Well, the, the literature is really replete. There's many, many publications on that, um, that, you know, a, a negative folate status, even the SNPs, the association of the SNPs with uh, increased pregnancy complications, preeclampsia, um, uh, premature abortions, uh, those are all associated with, these pregnancy complications are all associated with uh, reduced levels of folate, the SNPs, and hypermethylation. So um, again, you know, whether it's just purely a vascular effect at the uterus level, as well, you know, where it's um, uh, you know the higher levels of homocysteine are having an effect on endothelial function and the vasculature and the n- nutritional support that's required in in maintaining the fetus there. Um, I'm sure that can can come into play. Um, we do know that, you know, obviously taking folate supplements during pregnancy is not only good for the for the baby and you know, the development, but it's it's good for the mother as well. Um, and uh, I, I mean, there are strong connections here, I think, and uh, uh, the benefits of uh, folate in, in in pregnancy are are, are, are many. Um, uh, not only for the pregnant, not only for the neural tube defects, but also preventing some of these complications. Um, and perhaps the migraine there, you know, can also be helped out, you know, through through this improved vascular function. Fascinating work. Um, like I said, I've been following you for a number of years, uh, not in a bad way, not stalking, but you know, following following your work. And uh, really appreciate you uh, joining us for this podcast. If uh, any of our listeners want to go and learn more, uh, please go look up some of Dr. Bottiglieri's work. And uh, you can certainly go and see uh, my webinar that we're just re-releasing here. Thank you very much, sir. I really appreciate you coming on and hopefully we can talk again. Thank you. I look forward to continuing the discussion.